you're busy and all of our customers and all publishers, even big ones and traditional ones are super resource constrained. From engineering, they've got filled pipelines, their teams, they've got way more work to do than people to do it. So it's not like, hey, we, you know, it's more like we don't have the time to tackle these things or necessarily the products or the capabilities. So that's why we love to part of them and say, we totally get that. You should be focused on how you can drive and write great content. Let us come in and make you this additional revenue and build community for you. Partner with us. Let us do that by just adding like a little snippet of code to your site. And we're going to help you maximize that. And then we're going to give you back this data and this insight. So you could see, oh, wow, this is working. Oh, wow, this is increasing my time on site. Oh, wow, I'm getting more engagement from my community, which ultimately helps me monetize more for my business. So I have more money to run my business. Hey, everyone. Do you have the right team in place? Are you positive about that? Today's guest comes with a lot of experience from raising 10 million plus from venture capital to turning the company profitable. But one topic he is adamant about is that you need to have the right team in place at the right stage. His name is Zach Dugo. His role, founder and CEO of Instigator, five-time Inc. 5000 publisher engagement platform with over 100 employees. And in today's conversation, we discussed several topics that really hit home for me, including leadership turnover and M&A lessons learned with a really core focus on cultural fit. This is The Dirt Podcast, and I am your host, Jim Barnish. To support us, please check out our sponsor, Orchid Black at orchid.black and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And now, excited to bring Zach into The Dirt. All right, Zach, let's dig right in. Who is Zach and what is Instacator? Hey, Jim. Uh, good to be here with you. God, who is Zach? That's a really good question. So I'm Zach Dugo, founder and CEO of Instacator. Um, so what we do at Instacator is we build social community for publishers. We see the future of social as being distributed across really the publishing ecosystem, as opposed to being siloed in the walled gardens of like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that people want to have community in types of content that they like, whether that's news or sports or entertainment. And so we build these social communities for publishers through commenting and trivia and polling and collecting first party data so they can drive meaningful increases in time on site, pages per session, monetization of their audiences, and better user experiences. So you can have that social connectivity when you're living on a, a different site versus you're inside of Facebook and the walled gardens where ultimately we feel like that doesn't better serve society and you know, user experiences. Yeah, what, what, uh, what challenges do publishers typically face in terms of understanding their audience, managing their data, things along those lines? Yeah, so a lot of publishers haven't necessarily built strong communities. Like they'll have more of an approach, they've had more of an approach historically of like, all right, I write an article, people will come read that article specifically. And that doesn't typically serve them long term instead of more of, I come here to get my content because whether that content and to have community, whether that's about like Korean pop music or it's about, you know, reading about like the latest and greatest in the weather system. Mm -hmm. So typically that's been an issue. And now publishers are partnering with companies like Instacator where we're building that community for them. 
So they're recognizing who these users are who are coming back consistently, driving really their, their publishing business forward, typically through advertising and monetization. Those elements of community, they're the people who are going to their events. They're the people that are actively trying to make that website and that platform better. And so what we do is we also pull in first-party data. So think of it like um, it's all non-personal identifiable. I'm a sports fan and I'm a Red Sox fan. And when I go to Major League Baseball, and Major League Baseball is a customer of ours, I want to see content that's curated around you know the Red Sox as opposed to the Baltimore Orioles because I'm not really interested in the Baltimore Orioles. I want to know what's going on with my team. Whether it's that or, you know, I'm a vegan enthusiast and I'm on this cooking website. I want to see that type of content and I want to engage with other like-minded people who share the same interests. And so we pass this data back to publishers to help them communicate more effectively with their audiences and help them monetize more effectively. Because we then take these audiences and make very kind of targeted advertising experiences based off of who they are, what audience buckets they fall into. So it really builds a sense of community. So people get to have shared interests. You and I are both, you know, Bleach Report fans. We can talk about sports in that community. It's that shared interest that keeps me coming back to Bleacher Report as an example so that I want to keep engaging with people and um, and having shared content experience. All right. So, so Zach, that uh, all that sounds great. When you're thinking from the customer lens, how how does Instigator help – publishers to maximize ad revenue and optimize their existing business? Yeah. So when we partner with a publisher and they use our content engagement units, like our trivia polling or content recirculation or a commenting product, when we're embedded in, we'll connect advertising into the experience. And what we're doing is we're taking that first party data and passing it to the different DSPs through what's called seller defined audiences or um, PPID. And so essentially then these advertisers through demand side platforms are transacting off of the audiences we pass to them and paying a higher CPM. So to put it really simply, when you're using one of our engagement products, like our content engagement unit has a cool engaging content and questions, and then there's an ad unit connected. And that ad unit maybe is now fetching a $3 CPM because we're passing in that this person is on an iOS device, but they like sports and they're a Red Sox fan. And there's a brand like Fanatics who is now bidding higher to be in front of them because that's the right target audience for them. And where Mm -hmm. we really shine at help publishers is we're not just a pure monetization solution. We're really driving engagement and monetization. So we're not just trying to take people off the site. We're trying to keep them more engaged in the experience in addition to making you more money as a publisher. Yeah, that's uh, so when you are... When you're bringing on a new publisher, and um, let's just say it's it's more of a traditional publisher that doesn't have as much knowledge on uh, either their, the the data that they do have access to or or their own uh, ability to monetize that data, what is what's typically the first the first step in that relationship? So one is. One is building trust and the, and the other is helping them understand that they have a an untapped resource there. You know, it's kind of like finding money under your seat cushion. Um, if you don't look, it still stays there, but you're not taking out, you know, that money and then like spending it on something of like, you know, your living room couch or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we try to help them see that and then go, look, let us, you're busy. And all of our customers and all publishers, even big ones and traditional ones, are super resource constrained. 
from engineering. They've got filled pipelines, their teams. They've got way more work to do than people to do it. So it's not like, hey, we, you know, it's more like we don't have the time to tackle these things or necessarily the products or the capabilities. So that's why we love to part of them and say, we totally get that. You should be focused on how you can drive and write great content and build community Let or write great content. Let's let us come in and make you this additional revenue and build community for you. Partner with us. Let us do that by just adding like a little snippet of code to your site. And we're going to help you maximize that. And then we're going to give you back this data and this insight. So you could see, oh, wow, this is working. Oh, wow, this is increasing my time on site. Oh, wow, I'm getting more engagement from my community, which ultimately helps me monetize more for my business. So I have more money to run my business. And when, when you say you're doing it through DSPs, are you talking about, you know, Facebook, Google, uh, or, you, or, or open web DSPs, um, you know, like Trade Desk, all of them? Like what, what's typically kind of the route towards, towards market? Yeah, for sure. So we do have other, you know, advertisers who just buy in our platform um, more, more directly. But we have, when you're asking DSPs, that's right. So like Amazon... Google, which is like DBM and AdWords, as well as open market ones like MediaMath or, you know, or Criteo or Quantcast or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. And and the space is is complicated, especially for somebody who doesn't fully understand it. So I can imagine education, as you mentioned, is such a big component of it. Um what is that a continual education process um, given the kind of the rapidly changing technology landscape or is it a you know one time educational process and then you've got a great customer how does that how does that typically work in the customer relationship yeah it's an ongoing process even quarterly because things shift yeah. so fast in our industry from like user behaviors and patterns to like engagement and time and like what content people want to see versus the technologies being used. Like think about things like Google AMP, which they used to push for publishers, which was important. Now they don't anymore. You don't even see those really in Google results. Yeah. Things change so rapidly. If you're not focused on educating your customers, and, and we're very much focused on educating our customers, helping them understand that value and their and their opportunities. We like to think ourselves of ourselves as like a consultative partner beyond just like the products that we bring to the table for them. Uh, if you're not doing that, you'll quickly fall behind because the pace at which Google and Amazon and the whole industry moves is pretty quick on the on the publishing side. Yeah, it is. And and you are uh, a chief educator, um, which includes um, knowledge of trends, uh, right? So, like, what what knowledge, uh, what trends do you see in the digital advertising industry as a whole that? Are, are impacting the space that are impacting your customers? So a couple of things. Uh, one is right now in kind of Q1, you're seeing a lower advertising spend, call it by like 20 or 30%. And I think that's due to like global economic factors, lots of uncertainty. Silicon Valley Bank and other companies being like, all right, let's hold on on spending marketing advertising dollars to acquire more customers because we're, there's a lot of uncertainty here. You can almost peg a lot of times like advertising spent to like global economic activity. There's oftentimes like an, a key trend there. Uh, so there's a couple things that we're seeing. One is, is that end users are demanding more from the publishers and the communities that are part of. They want to feel that sense of connection. And so they're looking more for that from the communities that are part of. When you look at what some of 
what some publishers have done very, very well, the ones that were thriving are really focused on community. And I could, you know, name some, some wonderful partners of ours from like Evolve Media to Ancestry Group and others that have done a really great job on that front. And we've been happy and feel privileged to be able to partner with them. Um, some other trends that we're seeing is a consolidation of, you know, different partners, if you will. So typically there's been, you know, could it be five or six different parties involved, like a publisher, could have, all right, I'm going to have one partner who's going to help me with managing all of my advertising stack. And I'm going to have one partner who's going to help me with my commenting community. I'm going to have one partner who's going to help me with my content engagement. I'm going to have one partner who's going to help me with my data management platform. And like, like vendor creep, too many different partners and none of the data talks to each other. And then it's hard to like make sense of things. And there's a lot of broken telephone. That's why we love doing more than one thing for publishers and really consolidating all of their first party data uh, and using that for their helping use that for them for their benefit because mm-hmm. there's so much noise. And unless you've got great, I've got a team of 50 that I can just have only focus on that. And no publisher really does even big ones. It can be a lot of noise and, and cloud inside of the industry. So in addition to that, we're seeing, so when I mentioned consolidation, I think you're seeing companies are tackling more thing than one. I, I, so where you've had traditionally lots of SSPs and, D, and DSPs, I think over the next two or three years, you're going to see a lot of consolidation. Um, you've seen, you know, you, you, you mentioned Trade Desk earlier. That's a company, for example, that's going up market and trying to work more directly with publishers. And you're going to see, you know, great SSPs like Magnite and, and Google who already does that, but look to remove that corresponding partner, like the D, the DSPs and the SSPs. I think you'll end up having just like, DSSP, like one partner in there who's representing advertisers and representing um, publishers. And I think that will actually ultimately be pretty good for the ecosystem in a lot of ways. Um, So you're going to see, I think, consolidation there. I do also think you're going to see a a continued wave on privacy, on data privacy, and that's going to be very taxing. Uh, And the reason why that'll be so taxing is because the regulators who are enacting the laws don't really understand what they're doing, in my opinion. And so what happens is you kind of then get, you know, second and third and fourth order, fourth order effects on that are unintended consequences. Um, and so, you know, while it'd be great for like the U.S. government to have some federal process, like, great, here are the data privacy laws. Every state is doing this differently. So then you're now going to have maybe in two or three years, you've got 35 different states who have different data privacy laws and you have to store data in this way for Nevada and you have to store data in this way for Oregon. And it's like, it'll be a little bit of a mess, but I do think that's where the trends are going because for people to understand it's, it's easier for a regulator to just kind of go out. And when I say regulator, I mean like somebody in Congress, if you will, and then who then communicates to the regulators to say, people are using your data. You should be scared. And people go, oh my gosh, these people are using my data. Stop using my data. Get the pitchforks. Right. Right. That's really actually easy. Um, But then when you turn to like practical, you know, practical implications of things, end users and consumers get get hurt by lack of access or lack of of usability by data and that's sort of where a lot of regulators are are, are kind of working towards um data makes things a lot more efficient and effective in a lot of ways as well so every single application you use that you 
talk about yourself. It's trying to customize that experience a lot of the time. Think about like if you log into your anything seeming innocent, right? You might log into your ClassPass app and like what if ClassPass can no longer show to you that like it knows you like yoga classes and where you're located. So instead, you now have to spend every time you log into ClassPass, you've got to go, okay, hey, I'm in New York. I like yoga. I want, no, I only want to do hot yoga, but you have to do that every time because you don't want that to be stored on you. Now, some people may be willing to make that trade off, but I think a lot of people are like, wow, that's going to add an hour to my day for everything that I do. And I don't want to do that every time I have to give new permissions and so on and so forth. It's it's the trade off, the constant trade off between data or user privacy and, and user experience, right? I mean, like not right. o- not only that as a user, you you add a bunch of time to your day, but you as a provider end up losing users because of the poor user experience that's caused by the focus on user privacy. <laughs> so that's it's exactly it's 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 a uh, it's an interesting dichotomy. So I had a follow up question there. Uh, how how can publishers leverage Instacator's technology to better protect user privacy? So we've built in a lot of those data privacy laws and regulations, GDPR and CCPA and deleting consent to being a you know a, a data processor. So when somebody when a publisher partners with us, we're gonna do all of these things for them, which then makes it a lot easier. It's just something they don't have to worry about because we've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal and tech infrastructure to build these things out for them. If you're a small publisher or a medium publisher and you've got a team of five or 10 or 30, even a large one, you don't want to have to deal with that. And like people who partner with companies like Instigator, it really helps them in not having to worry about, oh, I got to figure out, I don't even speak the language on what is the newest privacy law happening inside of Norway. And so, um, we help navigate that because we've taken care of that because we have to do that for a lot of customers at scale. Yeah, no, that's great. All right. I, I want to switch gears here for a minute because you guys have had sure. some explosive growth, um, yep. which is always incredible once you get there. But it, it wasn't always such a such an easy road, if you will. Right. I mean, it doesn't no. just happen overnight. So no. so take me back to when Instacator was only, let's say, only a few million in revenue or whatever post product market fit was. Right. You had established that you had something great. What were what were the biggest challenge that you, that you faced in growing it from a couple million until, you know, what you've gotten today? Uh, I think a big, yeah, it's funny you say overnight. It's like, oh yeah, we've been, we're an 11 year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> funny how that works. Um, uh, so a couple of big ones. I think, um, one of those is, is people. And so oftentimes, uh, well, certainly what's been true for Instacator is we, you have to go through the process of leveling up at times your, your leadership team. And sometimes the skill sets of the people that you initially bring on board or really, helpful to the business in that stage may not be helpful in the next stage. It's a different skill set to be a salesperson or have two salespeople reporting in than to have a sales team of 10 or 20. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes um, you want to try to train or coach those people. But the unfortunate reality is that a lot of people may not level up as quickly as you'd like, and it can hold the business back. And so then you need to look at, okay, well, let me bring in leaders who are smarter than our existing team, smarter than our C3, and the more smart people you can hire that can then take on those challenges, have those skill sets, and help push the business to that next level. Mm -hmm. So I try to think about it like team in terms of 
call it like 18 to 24 month increments. Like, is this person the right person for this role for the next 18 months? Because 18 months from now, it may be a whole different skill set required to help us scale to that next level of growth and that next level of opportunity. And it's really counter, it's very counterintuitive to human behavior. So, you know, I had an interesting discussion the other day about this because I think human behavior is much more linked towards, I built these really amazing connections and relationships. And I feel very privileged to work with amazing people at at Instacator, a lot of whom I have very close relationships with. Um, And you're thinking, well, you know, I have to be loyal to them no matter what, because they've been here from the earlier days. And this is a challenge I think a lot of founder CEOs face or professional CEOs. Um, And what you realize, though, is that you need to be loyal, not just as a CEO, but your whole C-suite to the entire business, to the entire company, to the entire org. And your loyalty to the entire org needs to be, I'm putting in the best possible people and the best culture and the best place where everybody can thrive. And so that means if there's uh, a person who's holding back a specific function, no matter what that function is, from getting to its you know, full potential, you need to make that change or say to that person, hey, look, I'd love for you to focus in on like this specific area of the business, but let's bring in somebody who you can learn from and grow from and thrive from and have opportunities for growth in your career. And that you can then, it'll help you progress because they know a whole host of things that maybe you're not aware of. Right. So that's, I think, a really great, you know, that's that's certainly helped us at times, but there's areas where we can do that even better as well. Because it's never easy doing that, like leveling up part of the business, but it's super essential. Oh, it's damn it's damn hard, right? Um, and which is why we need to talk about it. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. And, and you, uh, you've had to turn over the leadership team quite a few times to take the company to the next level. Yep. So was it always a quick move that you made and and um in and success on the other end or like did you always move fast when you didn't have the right leader or were there times when you moved too slow? No, I think the latter. Most times I've moved too slow. Most times I think I made that mistake of all right, I want to give this person time to get there and then 6 months goes by and a year goes by and a year and a half goes by and then you look up and you're like, wow, way too much time. And this part of the business is not nearly where it could be or should be because you can index for, okay, I've got a C or a B in this role. What, what can happen if they're a B plus your, your mind can kind of index for that. What you can index for is what if I have an A in this role who knows a whole host of things that I haven't even thought about. Right. And we, we've had this now happen, um, you know, in a few different times at Instacator, uh, you know, we have some amazing leaders who, who've come in, especially over the last six months to a year, you know, from our SVP of sales wall to like many others and um, have changed the way we've thought about the business and it helps push the entire business forward and myself to be a, a better leader because you can't index for, oh, man, I've got now an egg in this role. Here's all the things I didn't think about that are now really wonderful. The other thing is, you know, when we've made that change at times, sometimes we've made, you know, not at the right change. But it doesn't mean it was wrong to make a change. It just means you didn't necessarily make a change or bring in a person above that function who's the right person and you need to look for the right one. Um, This is not... And initially, 
I was like, wow, we, we, we've had this happen a few times, but I'm a part of something called YPO and chatting with my YPO chapter and founders, other founders who it's very common. You go through a few different, uh, you know, rounds of at times of leadership to really help get your business into a very smooth flow. And then you're leveling up as you continue to grow. And that, that level up happens, um, in, in a, a lot of ways, right? The, the talent of the organization, the team, but also sometimes you got to do the same thing with the board. Have you ever had to do anything like that with board members or ever had any, any, uh, opportunities for upgrading as it related to, uh, non-operational team members, I'll call it. Oh yeah. And that's, that's the even more difficult one, right? Because, you can transition somebody from your org. In most cases, you can't easily transition somebody from your board or from your advisory board or however you've structured your business. Um, so, you know, we've had we've had that happen and, and had scenarios where I've had to look and go: Is this person contributing value to the business? Are they challenging the business? Are they challenging us in a way that's going to help us grow? Are they challenging me in a way that's going to help us grow? And oftentimes in that conversation with the answer is no, trying to like seed that in a way. And often, oftentimes um, it's challenging because people have egos and it's, it's a, it's a challenging position, right? Because the board typically has control, like meaning the board has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders and oversees the management team. And essentially what you're doing is you're saying to somebody on your board, Hey, listen, I think it would be best for the business for you to step aside. So I think if you can align with um, or calibrate with your board members who are either close to that person or, um, or have a good relationship there and they can help with that conversation, that can be great. Because the last thing you want, it can be really distracting, is to have like a toxic dynamic with a board member or with your board that could be a super big distraction. So it's really important you approach those conversations with grace and as much objectivity as you can, uh, which is naturally, which is naturally difficult. So I'd say, you know, when you can have an ally on your board who helps with those things, I think that's very, very, very useful and effective. So if someone's listening in, whether it's a, um, whether they're having the opportunity, we'll call it with a board member or a team member, leadership team member, whatever it might be, what, what's a, what's a good tip you have for them as they're going through kind of that, that figure it out phase? So I, I think there's, um, two parts to it. If you, before you have that conversation, role play it. And the second is, is come in very prepared. And I think a good way to do that is to go, okay. Say the business is X. Hey, we're $30 million in revenue and we want to get to our plan is to be at 500 within four years. And here's how we want to get there. We want to tackle these international markets. We want to level up our technology. We want to do some acquisitions and try to highlight for the board member, again, in a way that like the delivery is even more important than the content mm-hmm. in an in-person and in a way that you're like, inquisitive almost, but like, Hey, from what I know of our relationship and your experiences, you haven't helped scale a company internationally. You haven't helped a company acquire other companies or go through later stage rounds of funding or whatever X, Y, and Z are. 
and trying to approach that with like, I am so grateful and I'm so appreciative that you have been supportive to the business from the early days of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to do is maximize your value as a shareholder, right? Just because they leave the board doesn't mean that they, they're losing their stock. I want to maximize your value as a shareholder. And a part of the way I can do that is if you allow me to help bring in somebody who can help us tackle those challenges more effectively, who has that additional knowledge and skill sets. Um, and that the framing of that, if you can approach it in that way of trying to make it more like we want to scale internationally and I, I would like a board member who can help us do that in a way that's not, you know, you're not attacking the person. You're just trying to like point out what you see um, and, and try to make it more about how you as a shareholder think about the future and trying to make it more like that again with if you can have an ally who who who's helpful, that's, that's very useful. Being as, as upfront as you can without being like, you know, attacking the person, which is a, is a specific kind of finesse. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's all about the same reason they join in the first place. It's all about the growth of the organization and increasing the enterprise value of the organization, right? As long as you don't that's get exactly. personal about it um, and you focus on why they came to the company in the first place, whether they're an investor or a team member, you know, that's a, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do though, but, but, uh, but an important thing to do. So you, you mentioned cool. something, um, around growth, you mentioned M and A and every time I hear M and A, uh, mergers, acquisitions, you know, my ears light up because that's my eyes, my ears, my body lights up because that's my background. So, um, you've done a couple acquisitions, I understand, right? Yep. Yes. Okay. So talk to me about, how the planning for those went, the ultimate execution and integration of those went, because you know most integrations are botched on day one. Most are not successful. Uh, love to talk about some of the challenges around M and A or lessons learned. But how did yours go? Yeah, so I think one of them has got. I think they've both been accretive, like valuable to the business. But I think one was much more successful than the other. And the other was like, you know, much more of a, a, a big challenge. And I, I think we thought and I thought, wow, we really diligenced this. And by diligence, we thought through like the mechanical diligence, which is here's what the customers look like. Here's their revenue numbers. Here's what their contracts look like and so on and so forth. And here's this deal structure and here's the earnout structure and so on and so forth. And so this makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's where 80% of our head was. And I actually kind of want to, f- I think you really need to flip it almost 80, 20, not 80, 20, the other direction. You need to do the financial diligence. You need to do the legal diligence, but you need to do the cultural diligence and that's more important. And what I would urge founders to think about is like, and not just think about, but ask the questions around like, how do things work this company? How do decisions get made? How do you guys celebrate wins? Um, how are performance reviews done? How do people think about getting promoted? How do people think about their futures? How do people communicate? They communicate through Slack a lot. Do they communicate through email? Do they like to do calls? Do people work on the weekends? Do they not? Do they get frustrated if you call or you email them after hours? Like list out all of like the almost like uncomfortable questions, but, but ask them and dialogue on those things and, and speak to them more than one person, not just the CEO. Mm-hmm. Ask those questions specifically. And in your gut, you should get a response and a non-response is a response, or you'll get a feeling like, oh, does this feel like we operate similarly or very differently? And one of ours, it was a very big cultural difference in the way that the business is operated. I didn't account for that as much. And what happens is 
you then spend the first three to six months trying to, you know, you're focused on the tasks, but you realize that like the team members see the world very differently and want very different things. And I think that's why so many acquisitions have lots of challenges is because there's a big cultural mismatch. So I would encourage you to have like a cultural diligence checklist that handles all those things. What are the values of these team members and this business? Like, do those values align? Are they, okay, so they're a customer first. All right, cool. But does that mean then that they're not team first? Like what, what's more important to them? So in one case, customer first may be like, all right, Nemo's come in at 11 p.m. at night. We expect you to respond in one example. Or if you're much more, no, we are, it's our team first. An email comes in at 11 p.m. That's urgent. We don't look to bother our team members off of hours. And you know the way they think about work-life balance is very important to us. So our culture is that'll just get a response on Monday. Right. But that can be like two very different modes of operating. And if you're not aligned on, oh, actually, this is the way we operate, or you should go in and know what the differences are. Even if you're going to go, okay, we want to do this anyways, know what the differences are, because otherwise you're going to have a very big challenge. Um, the other thing I would do is make it really clear to the acquiring company. And again, like a lot of these things matter in the details, but how are they going to integrate into the org the timeline for that and making it clear like it's much more like meritocracy based and the scaling of that is meritocracy based and that they have career progressions just because they're from the target company doesn't mean oh they can't be the vp of the whole group of the division try to if you can have ways that you're merging in members of leaders or middle-level management if it makes sense okay. so you're kind of getting like a you know a balanced org if you will if it's a similar sized org i know it can a lot of these things can vary because if people feel like, oh, wow, we're getting acquired, I don't know, does the new decision makers, do they have my best interests at heart? Do they care about my future, my career? Does that matter to them? If those things are unanswered questions, you might think, oh, all right, well, we just haven't addressed them yet. But for all of the people in the target company, it's like, all right, I'm already looking for the door. I'm looking for an exit because I don't even know what's going to happen uncertainty a lot of times for people can equal fear. Some people, it's exciting for them because they look forward to the change, but you want to try to build in, look, no, we're, we're not going to treat you differently because you're from this target acquired company. We want to try to integrate you in the org and give you opportunities to thrive. So I, I think, and lastly, I really would, I I'd really think about the whole way you'd think about anything like an earnout very, very differently. Because what you initially think you're going to want that – people are going to focus on what they're incentivized for. Mm -hmm. And if you've incentivized them around something specific, but you found out a month in or two months and you're like, actually, I need their help over here. Now you kind of have a problem. So trying to be as broad as possible on that front or you know, I'm not as much a fan of that specifically because you may need those team members to help you in a bunch of different ways that have nothing to do with the specific earnout st structure you've put together. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would just encourage you to almost think about like something that's way broader or it's not time-based. It's not connected to necessarily something very specific. Okay, cool. My earnout's connected to EBITDA for my asset. Great. I'm not going to focus on helping the parent company X, Y, and Z. I'm going to focus on my earnout. So yeah, I think there's a bunch of things that we do differently. All four of those are, are one of them. Or some of them. So your mind, your mindset on future acquisitions versus past acquisitions. How would you wrap that up 
into, you know, a couple simple things? Um, when I think about an acquisition now, there's three things. I think the first is, is it worth the distraction? So the distraction will be massive, especially for a startup, mm-hmm. like massive, like the distraction alone. Like if your business is growing 300% year over year, unless you're really massive and you have a huge team or you're like really very much growing, I I think it has to be so compelling. Like it has to be so over the moon because you're not going to get that over the moon value that it looks like on the outset. You're going to get a percentage of that. Yep. And so you need to weigh that into your decision-making. Is the value so over the moon that we're going to do this? And, you know, is it worth this distraction that's totally going to distract us from executing on our core business and so on and so forth? Are you at a stage where like that makes sense because maybe your business has plateaued and that's a lot of times where you see companies doing acquisitions. And so it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense for us because this could help spur or there's amazing talent here. Like try to be clear in your mind as to like why you're doing something and it's got to be very compelling. So don't think, all right. I'm getting a great team and I'm getting um, 5 million in revenue. And that, if I get all of that, great, then I'm happy. Think about it like, all right, if there's 5 million in revenue there and there's a great team, it's like, well, what if I only get 2 million of revenue and I get some of the team? Does this still make sense? Do I still want to do this? Mm -hmm. Um, Is this still worth the distraction? Is this still worth where we're at based on where we're at right now? If the answer is no, don't don't do it. Like it's got to be so compelling because there's so many unknown risks that you can't account for. It's got to be like, we really should do this and here's why. And this is like a no-brainer and here's why. Because you're not going to get the full value of however it all looks and however you think about it on the onset. Straight from the mouth of Zach. I love it. All right. Uh, so to, to close us off, uh, like every episode, I'm going to ask you five questions a founder five we call it um and so the first one is what is the top metric or kpi that you are relentlessly focused on so right now for our business, I, I focus on like relentlessly. I'm focused on like our expansion of our business. So that's new customers. So like what is our, you know, monthly new customer count and, you know, secondary metrics to that North star are, you know, happiness, of those customers, revenue, of those customers, and like, what is the engagement of their end users? Mm-hmm. I think that relentless focus has changes for us depending on each, you know, where we're at in our growth stage. Sometimes sure. it's been, let me fo- product focus of like, how are we driving the most engagement per user and like in revenue per session per user? Uh, but right now for our stage, it's uh, as we're expanding, it's much more how we can expand the number of people that we help. That's great. Uh, top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Surround yourself with as many people that are smarter than you as possible. I think some of the best business decisions I've made are more connected to like joining something like YPO, where every month I get together with eight different you know CEOs or as a hedge fund or different Series C tech company and so on, and we trade ideas because it challenges my own thinking and then brings a whole different host of value to the table that I'm not even thinking about. 
So growth stage, really focus on your network and then who can be helpful there. Like those key people, as well as like growing and your org internally with the most amazing people. Um, but I would say the top tip, like make sure that you're, you're expanding your network so that you can bring in amazing talent, think about things differently. It can help with a whole host of things from financing to like product to a whole host of things. All right. Next one, uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow. So can I, I'll give you one of each. How's that? Uh, so I love the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz. That's one of my favorites. I think it really nails so many of the challenges of the struggle of being, you know, a founder and growing that business. And I love the all in podcast. I mean, it's, I listen to it every week, uh, or every other week, whenever they shoot it, I think they tackle all of, you know, the big important issues of the day and think about things and like a, a really important, like, a very, very fun, fun dialogue. Yeah. Nice. All right. A uh, piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. Yeah. All right. I think that when you're starting a business, um, you, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that goes around. Like you're just, you grind as hard as possible and we kind of celebrate that. And I think that's, important but what i would do differently about it is more the quality than the quantity in terms of i find i'm a better ceo if i've worked out if i've eaten healthy if i've slept enough right if i um have like you know healthy channels whereas if i'm rocking like a 14 or 15 hour day i'm i'm not making the best decisions i'm not thinking about things clearly so like checking in for, with yourself, I think is, is a really, really, really important, uh, important, valuable thing, period. All right. Lastly, what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you've accomplished all you set out to? How about um, learning things the hard way, but still succeeding by Zach Dugo? I like it. I like it. Zach Dugo, yeah. I look forward to reading that book. Yeah, look, right. I'll tell you, it's it's funny, right? Because sometimes, or I think a lot of important lessons in life, like you can tell me something, Jim, somebody can tell me something or somebody can tell somebody something and you can understand it right in the frontal part of your brain. Yeah. But your lizard brain doesn't get it. And some lessons, you just got to learn the hard way. Like God bless people who can just learn from somebody being like, oh, don't do that. And you're like, oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but... I, some, you know, some lots of important things in life, you learn them through going through them, whether it's personal or, or it's business. And so sometimes there's there's no shortcut for experience. Yeah, I love it. All right, Zach, you've given a ton to our listeners today. Time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those okay. listening help you out? Come check out what we're doing at instacator.com or follow us on LinkedIn or refer us to one of your uh, favorite publishing sites that you work with. Say, hey, I want to have some engagement and comments on this site through Instacator. Um, yeah. And I, or give us feedback. I love feedback. You know, take a look at our product. Be like, hey, have you guys thought about this? Or have you thought about this? Or I think that's feedback's a gift. And so love that. Um, that would be awesome. And, you know, to your audience, I would not be where I am today if I didn't have a ton of help along the way from people who just like wanted to be helpful. 
So I'm happy to pay it forward. So anybody can reach out to me anytime. And if I can help you, I will. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Just shoot me a ping on LinkedIn, Zach Dugo, or, um, you know, you could shoot me an email, Zach, Z-A-C-K dot Dugo at instacator.com. Zach Dugo, Jim Barnish, The Dirt. Hope you all enjoyed it. Come back and visit us. Thanks so much, Zach. Thanks a lot, Jim. I appreciate it. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.